This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, this is Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. I have a, a guest this week that I'm really especially thrilled to have on because he's been very influential um, to me personally in my career. You'll hear us talk about this uh, in great detail during the podcast part, but Jim McCann is a person I saw give a speech at a conference in the, I want to say, mid to late 90s that was really fascinating and informative, and he's just a great public speaker, literally public speaker of the year in 1997. Might have been the year I saw him. Uh, a terrific raconteur. And I remember seeing him speak and saying to a friend, that looks like fun. I'd like to learn how to do that. And lo and behold, some years later, I'm actually giving a speech in Las Vegas about the book Bailout Nation. And, and lo and behold, later that day, I'm online to get some food somewhere, and there, standing right behind me, is Jim McCann. And it turned out he's a reader of mine. He reads the blog for many years and was kind of a, a little bit of a fan, and we started chatting. It turns out we live a town or two apart. We ended up going out to dinner a couple of times. He's just a really, really interesting guy, and he is extremely insightful in how to run a small, innovative business how to motivate employees, how to just keep some really interesting things happening with your business. And you'll hear his approach to, to building a company was not typical and very, very successful. Uh, I find him to be a fascinating guy. I find him to be a person who I would hope to emulate some of his abilities and successes, both as a business person and a communicator. But Really interesting guy who does some fascinating things. That's the bottom line. So without further ado, here is my interview with the founder and CEO of 1-800-Flowers, Jim McCann. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. I am thrilled to have my special guest here today. He is Jim McCann. He is the founder, former CEO, and current Chairman, is that correct? Well, on 1-800-Flowers. I, I didn't get the notice yet about the dismissal, but I'm still the CEO. Oh, you are? Apparently, you and the board have uh, come to some other Your conclusion. brother was talking to me about this, and he said, no, no, Jim is just the chairman. I know what you guys are up to. <laughs> Actually, at the holiday party at your home, yep. I think we briefly discussed whether or not you were going to become chairman and give up CEO, so that was sticking in my head. Anyway, Jim is the founder and CEO of 1-800-Flowers, which is a company that has a whole lot of firsts. It's the first company to have its name be an 800 dial-up number. That's right. You were the first company, first retail company, really, that cut a big deal with AOL back when they were one of the biggest uh, internet providers. They were the comer at that time. I think the big internet provider was Prodigy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Exactly. <laughs> and it was a big decision for uh, Chris and I way back when, Barry, to decide, do we go with Prodigy? And Prodigy, they, they had an office building. Mm -hmm. They wore suits. They were owned by IBM and Sears, and they were established. What do we go with this upstart uh, called AOL? And uh, the decision- in your, in your book, you describe 
having a meal with them where they couldn't even afford to pick up the check. <laughs> That's right. But there was a decision based on people. And, and in that case, it was Steve Case and Ted Leonsis. Uh, we knew t- Chris and I knew Ted from other uh, careers uh, that he had had. So after we met with them, even though I didn't understand what in Lord's name they were talking about, right. I, I just made a bet on people. And so we went with uh, this startup AOL, and uh, it was a very fortuitous decision. That, that, by the way, is a theme that I picked up throughout your book about making a bet on people, whether it's technology <clears throat> or what have you. It's the people behind it that sell you on that process. Don't you think we do that every day in all our decisions? Uh, you go to visit a doctor. You don't know really how good they are, but if you feel like they care and they have a nice manner about them, you feel very good about them, don't I'd you? I'd like to review the board scores. You got 70, <laughs> question 72 wrong. How did you miss that? that I'm was not obvious. surprised at right. your response. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it, it's true. You are that, a data-driven fellow. <laughs> I, I am, but sometimes you have no choice but to rely a little bit on your own instincts sure. and your read of people. The problem that some of us run into is that we're gullible and we believe what people Listen, the only reason I became kind of a data wonk is that I'm an idiot, and anytime somebody says something to me, I believe it. And then I would go to the data. Wait a second. That's not what the data says. Now, you say global warming isn't happening? You look at the data, <laughs> you see global warming. It's lower left to upper right. Uh, that was amazing when you pointed that out back a couple of months ago in your, uh, on your blog. I said, wow, it's irrefutable data. It's only if you believe that the NOAA, uh-huh. you know, or NASA isn't cooking the books. Right, they're not. They're not faking it. And and look, the the bottom line is, what's going to be is going to be. There's there's, uh, you know, uh, you and I were talking earlier. I have a boat. I have too many cars. I'm the last person in the world to lecture anybody about being green. Yeah, their carbon footprint. Right. I'm I'm not telling people. Oh, you shouldn't do this. But I am telling people if we're going to discuss this, at least let's be honest about the data yes. and not pretend. You, you may come to a decision that there's nothing we could do anyway. It's mm-hmm. too expensive or we could let technology figure out a way to fix it. But it's amazing how few times data is the grounding principle of our argument or conversation. But And, and how many times we'll say, I don't care what the data says. Right. <laughs> but now I noticed one of the things that I read in your book is how significant – data becomes to running a large company that has a lot of far-flung locations, places, retail outlets. Tell us a little bit about how you guys use data. Well, I I would say data is frankly more important to a smaller business. Uh, We were chatting the difference between entrepreneurs and and small business people Mm -hmm. and how lots of times people confuse those things in the multiple roles that small business people have to play. Uh, But data, data is harder to get when you're a small business, but I think much more important because the consequences of your decisions are much more leveraged. Right. It, it does, it, you can, a big company can absorb a, a couple right. of mistakes, and, a couple of errors. And they have people who are gathering data for them. Mm-hmm. It may not be the right data, but at least there's data available. So now let's, let's step back and take a look a, a little bit about your background. I, I recall reading you were in social services. You were working at the St. John's Home for Boys mm-hmm. and moonlighting as a bartender. And decided that one day a customer had come in, was selling his florist shop, and you said, yeah, I'd like to try that. That's uh, that's pretty much the case. I'll give you a little more around the angles there. Uh, I've been very fortunate. I really only had two careers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first was in the social services, and that was an accident uh, that I got into that. And, uh, and an accident in the sense that 
being an Irish Catholic uh, kid from South Queens, I had a genetic requirement to be a bartender. Okay. But I don't count that as a career. And working in neighborhood place, I had a guy who was a friend who worked at this home for boys. And uh, I'd ask him about it all the time when he came into the bar. And I just thought it was really interesting work. And one night he said to me, geez, you ought to come visit us. He had a group home with 10 young men in it. And he said, you ought to come visit us, have dinner with us one night. Sounds to me like you have an interest in this work. Well, I did. And we had a great dinner together. And after dinner, he said to me, geez, would you like to give this work a try? I was going to school part-time, attending bar part-time. And I said, yeah, I'd like to give it a try, Bob. He flipped me the keys and said, okay, you're on duty tonight. And he left. <laughs> And that's that, how you started, literally how you started That's it, literally right? how I started. And it was a great, uh, for a young man, I was just turning 21, it was a great uh, opportunity for me because, look, I learned so much more about myself mm -hmm. uh, living in a group home with uh, 10, uh, 10 fellas uh, ages 15 to 20 years old uh, than I could learn 100 years of psychotherapy. It was, I mean, if, if you were inconsistent in any way, it would be pointed out to you. Mm -hmm. uh, if you if your left bicep was a quarter of an inch smaller than your right bicep, it would be pointed out to you. And there was nothing. This mirror was very unforgiving. Couldn't get away with anything with these kids. Could not. We were talking about your experience essentially running a uh, small home for boys. Mm -hmm. How did that impact your subsequent management style? when you were running a substantially larger company. Well, you know, it's people people think it's two completely different careers. And I overlapped for 10 years mm -hmm. uh, doing both. You know, So I started my flower shop career, as you mentioned, uh, uh, four years into my social service career. So for 10 years, I did both. And it was I found after a while that when I got better at my work at St. John's, the tools I learned, the, uh, the method, methodologies I employed, those were the same things I was doing in the group home as I was doing in the office. Dealing with shops. people, the way you deal with motivate. people. In in the group home, it was getting people uh, who uh, were tough kids from tough backgrounds to realize that we had rules, and we had rules because I cared about them, and I was going to treat them all well. Uh, that I really did care about them, and uh, and that if we worked toward a common goal, that there'd be we'd measure ourselves along the way. We'd set up some benchmarks and some rewards. We'd try and make it fun, try and make it interesting. We'd keep score, and uh, there'd be a celebration if we hit our goal. That's the same things we all do in the workplace every day. Here's our goals. Let's, uh, let's measure ourselves. Let's make it public. Let's keep track. Uh, let's, uh, let's set up rewards that are intermittent along the way, and let's have a celebration when we get to our victories. So the same things I learned working in that group home with 10 young men are the same things I do in the workplace every day trying to get people to work together to achieve more than they thought they could on their own. Did you have any early mentors in either venue? Uh, well, certainly at St. John's, the, uh, the is run by an order of religious priests and brothers in Rockaway Beach in Queens. And the brother who ran the home uh, was a mentor of mine and was for many years, even beyond when I stopped working in St. John's. But uh, yeah, he was a mentor. His name was Brother Tom. He's still, uh, he's still in that work. And a uh, terrific guy, and he taught me a lot about organization. And uh, I just quoted him when someone said to me, uh, we, had, we were just talking uh, about a, a time about a year or two ago. My brother Chris and I were looking around. We had about four or five projects, and we had to pick leaders for them. And it had to be sort of a quick kind of thing. And when we got done, someone said, did you realize that you just picked four young mothers? Oh, really? And we hadn't. 
and uh, people here remembering this. And I hadn't realized it, and he hadn't realized it. And uh, so one of them, her uh, name was Leslie, turned to us and said, well, of course you did, because we don't have time for the BS. Right. <laughs> we don't have time for stuff. You know, we, we just got to get it done. We got right. to get the kids out. We got to get in the car. We got to make use of that time in the car to get our work done. We don't have time for nonsense. They have to be organized. <laughs> they have to be structured. And there's a lot of balls in the air at once. And his quote was, if you want to get something done, give it to a busy person. Yep. And if they're not busy, there's a reason. So now let's talk about one other aspect of your background, how I first came to know you, which was through public speaking. I was telling the story not too long ago about a conference I attended, and I want to say this was 1997 or 1998, at Silicon Alley Insider. It was all the way downtown. Mm -hmm. And I saw you speak to a room full of young tech entrepreneurs, and I remember thinking to myself, what the heck does anybody who runs a floral shop know about young tech entrepreneurs and venture investing. And, and you realize nothing. <laughs> uh, but it, but you managed to craft a compelling story that you know the whole crowd was hanging on your every word. Well, How did that come about? So many of us uh, fear uh, public speaking. And, uh, and I, you know, it was, for me, it was a part of my ongoing recovery from being a shy person. Mm -hmm. So as a kid, I was a shy kid, but uh, I grew out of it. To say the least. And, and trying to grow out of it was confronting your fears. And when I got involved with the Entrepreneur of the Year program back in 1991, all of a sudden you had to be on stage a lot and be in front of the public a lot. And I realized, A, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the challenge of it. And I realized that uh, I, could be, I could be pretty good at it if I just didn't try to be a public speaker, mm -hmm. if I just told my story. Or my, whatever stories make the point, because people, hey, when you when you're asked to give a talk, you're really asked to entertain people. Mm -hmm. And if you come from genetic background, I do humor is a part of our lives. And uh, you know, look at all the comedians who uh, come from Long Island, Barry. A right. friend of mine just doing a uh, a uh, a story on that for uh, Newsday, and now just doing a uh, a little uh, feature film on that. But when you come from that background, you learn to use humor and your real stories. You found out, wow, this isn't very hard because I would tell this around the dinner table. Now I'm just telling it on stage. But you're there to entertain, to make a point, and, uh, and you don't have to remember very much if you just tell a story of what actually happened. Right. That's the old joke. It's, uh, I tell the truth because it's so much easier to keep track of <laughs> exactly. than trying to, to keep the lie straight. And, and what a wonderful thing. Here I am. Anytime I spoke to an audience or anytime I do speak to an audience, I'm speaking to customers or potential customers. You especially. Because of the nature of the business we're in. Right. You, you actually, again, back to your book, you say every person I meet is a potential. Who isn't going to buy flowers over the next 10 years? Some flowers or any kind of a gift that we sell. So, so for us, I was saying, wait a minute. People are going to pay me to come and get to know potential customers. This is a pretty good idea. So that's how it came about. So, so from doing the Entrepreneur of the Year group mm -hmm. to, in 97, becoming Toastmaster of the Year, mm -hmm. how, how does that progression happen? Well, it, it went kind of quickly. I didn't even know uh, that uh, that had been uh, nominated. And uh, it, uh, it continues today. I mean, the opportunities I have are, you know, I don't have time to do it as much as I'd like to anymore. But the opportunity to be in front of really interesting audiences, now I do it as favors. Mm -hmm. I do it as a favor for a company I'm trying to build a relationship with, uh, some good potential partner for us. I just did one for a, a big technology partner of ours. I, I did, their, uh, did their conference in South Florida uh, because uh, it's, a, it's my currency that I can invest to help build a relationship between our companies that I think will be good for us and for them. That, that's quite fascinating. So 
Let's get back to the original concept of conversation. And I'm pulling another quote of yours. Conversation is the unsung super tool of human interaction. Explain that. Well, you know, it, it sounds so obvious that it's a toss away, but I don't think it is in the sense that it, when we do what you do every day and what you do with this program is you get to know somebody. You get to learn about them. You get to learn about how they think. And you're imparting that information to your audience in a way that's interesting, that's informative, that's entertainment. But by the way, it's conversational. And, uh, and I think that too often we don't realize that the conversational activities that we have every day are off a little nuggets of learning, uh, off of you research. We were chatting recently about uh, how long in an interview do you have before you realize, hey, this isn't going to work out, and how much is it before you had polite time? You guys went public some years ago, and since that time, we've heard a lot of complaints from venture investors, from some entrepreneurs, from some people running companies about the burdens of running a public company. How, how has running a public firm uh, treated you? Well, I can understand, you know, lots of times people are going to see the burdens of it. And it's like anything else, there's two edges to the sword. We went public, as you say, Barry, a long time ago, 1999, August. Uh, we were a, a floral and gift company. Uh, we embraced the online world early. You know, first we were first we went with a telephone, 1-800-Flowers is our primary access modality. And then just a couple of years later, when my brother came into the business, we went online, 1990, 92. And then- uh, There was barely an internet back then. Barely. And 95 was when Netscape uh, came along, mm -hmm. created the browser, organized the internet, and started to really matter to us then. And by 99, we had 21 finance competitors from zero. Wow. Uh, so we were advised and, and we took the advice to get public because we didn't know how long the fight was going to be and whether or not we'd have enough powder to do it on our own. So we went public in August of 99, just as the window was closing mm -hmm. on all of the dot-com companies. So we didn't realize it then, but it was. Yahoo missed their earnings that morning for the first time, and a market created. We limped out. We did well. But the good news is, although many banks advise us to dribble out the IPO, uh, just raise a little bit more now, walk it up the ladder. We took everything we needed to build out our business in one shot. So that was very good advice. Goldman took us public. Lawrence Calcano, a partner there, still a friend, still a board member, gave us that good advice. So while the rest of the world was going uh, crazy, we had all the cash we needed. We built out our business. Uh, those 20 of those uh, 21 competitors disappeared. Right. And we were in, in good shape uh, uh, from a business point of view. So being public... Well, I, there are days I'd rather I wasn't. <laughs> for sure. Uh, but net-net, the chance for us to share equity with our employees, uh, the credibility it gives you, the public relations opportunities it gives you. You also have access to capital. Uh, and if you get to be a little bit larger, you can use your currency. So for those reasons, but mostly for the discipline that it imposes on us, huh. it's been a net good thing for That's us. That's a very interesting thing. Speaking of currency, you recently did the largest acquisition um, in the company's history. Harry and David, that was your biggest acquisition, is that it, right? It, so far, it's been our largest acquisition ever. It was a $400 million company. Uh, we acquired it on September 30th of 2014. Uh, we just went through the holiday season. Uh, it's a company, Barry, we've looked at 
four times over the last 12 years, mm-hmm. the stars finally ar- uh, aligned for us. It was a, a good acquisition for us from a timing point of view. We're in the same business. We looked longingly at their capabilities in areas that we weren't in. Uh, we were building our way toward categories that they uh, that they were in that uh, we wanted to be in. And so when they came available for sale and we entered the process and it worked out that we were able to acquire it at what we hope was a, a good price, uh, 12 year 12 year goal finally accomplished. And they're a great name brand. People know who they are and that should should work nicely together. We've been in the flower gifting business now for almost 40 years and we've been adding different food lines uh, throughout the years. We have a company called the Popcorn Factory. Oh, we sure. have several different chocolate brands and uh, the most well-known Fannie Mae and Fannie Farmer, Harry London. Uh, we have a bakery company called Cheryl's, which does uh, those great cookies. So we've been adding to our food offering, as our customers say, we'd like more food-type gifts. And uh, we had a big overlap in customers between our 1-800-Flowers customers and the Harry and David customer base. So when it came available to us, it was just a natural. And they have so much untapped potential for an 80-year-old company. Right. Uh, they have a, a wonderful brand called Wolferman's, which are the best uh, English-style muffins you've ever had in your life. They're just fantastic. I know the the chocolate-covered popcorn, uh-huh. caramel chocolate popcorn, the mousse. Mousse munch. Oh, what a great insane. product. I, I was just doing insane. research on it yesterday afternoon with my wife. <laughs> By it's doing delicious. research, meaning you were eating, you were eating popcorn it. while you were watching TV. <laughs> exactly. So, so let's let's bring it back to- While we were watching the- uh, The uh, Grammys. Grammys last night. The um, So- how often does the stock price get in the way of your long-term planning? You know, a lot of people use Amazon as an example. Hey, they don't care about profits. They just keep building for the future. And Wall Street has been really tolerant of it. Do you, do you have that same luxury? No, we don't. Uh, very few companies uh, achieve that luxury. They frankly have earned it so far, I think. I heard uh, Bill Gurley, who's a, a great venture capitalist, former analyst, being interviewed on this network over a weekend just a couple of weeks ago. Betty Lou uh, was interviewing him, and she I think she asked him uh, about Amazon, and he said, it's not a problem as long as it's not a problem. Right. In other words, as long as Wall Street's buying, that there's a, that they got the, uh, the secret sauce there, there's not an issue. But the moment they start to doubt Amazon, there'll be an issue. I, I think that's probably accurate. He knows a lot more about the world than I do, but I think they've earned the currency with Wall Street. We aren't in the same position. Uh, we're much more judged now by our earnings now, and uh, but I'll tell you what, when it's going well, I mean, our, our stock has really performed well since the acquisition. People say, "Oh my lord, look at the synergies here!" Uh, I, it, it it feels good. It's like a vote of uh, confidence from Wall Street that you've done something good. My guest today is the founder and CEO of One Eight Hundred Flowers, Jim McCann. We were talking about the acquisition you had done um, with One Eight Hundred uh, Flowers taking over Harry and Harry David. And David. Let's talk a little bit about what you described as the four waves that your company has gone through. And, and that was retail, the 800, 800 number, internet, and the fourth one being what? Well, the fourth one is one we're going through right now, Barry. That is, you know, we started with stores. We changed the name of our company to 1-800-Flowers, changed the name of our stores to 1-800-Flowers, which people thought was really nuts. And then, uh, and then having changed the industry by embracing this new 800 number concept, we, uh, as uh, Andy Grove wrote, only the paranoid survive. We were paranoid about what the next emerging technology would be that might disrupt us. So that's why we were early to the internet. Right now, I think the most exciting of the four waves 
uh, is the wave that's crashing on a beach now. And just like those beautiful waves out on Jones Beach on Long Island are oftentimes three-headed waves, this one is two. And it's uh, what we call it as uh, social, uh, local, and mobile. And that three-headed wave is crashing on our beaches big time now. It's probably the biggest of all those waves and socially, uh, and certainly having the most impact on us. And mobile is exaggerating everything. Uh, you know, clearly the, the smartphones we all carry now are changing all of our lives. They're no longer phones. They're, they're remote controls for the rest of our life. And uh, it's changing how we connect with one another, how we express ourselves, and how we purchase anything. So it's, we're fortunate that we've been investing in mobile uh, for a lot of years now. And so that's why we're a leader in the mobile space. We're a leader in the social space because we sort of have it as part of our culture now and not accidentally, Barry, that that being early to things, to new technologies is a part of our DNA. Let, let's talk about social a minute because again, back to your book, there's a charming story about you writing an email to a number of people about what's going on in social or it wasn't even called social then, and you get a scathing response from a new employee who essentially marked up your email and corrected it and said, I completely disagree McCann? with you. <laughs> you. You don't know what you're talking about. His name was Steve Liu, and he uh, wrote me this note back, and I went out. I knew where he sat, and I left my office. He was a new employee, right? He was only there a couple of months, I think. So I go over to him, and I put it down on his desk, and I say, how dare you disagree with the CEO around here? And he's like, what the heck is going on here? And he was like almost trembling. And I pat him on the back. I said, Steve, I'm only kidding. I said, this is terrific. But I saw that more <laughs> as emblematic, not just of social and the tools, but of the new millennial generation in terms of how they view their place, their ability to say things, their ability to participate. And I saw that as a very good sign for our culture, the kinds of people we were hiring and the freedom of expression that they had. By the way, he was right on everything he corrected me on. So that, But he got you very involved in Facebook fairly or early for a commercial entity. We, very early. And it, frankly, so early it was still, uh, it, it was still uh, only available to you if you had an EDU address. Mm-hmm. And we, I do these dinners all the time around the shop called What Have You Learned Lately Dinners? And we invite uh, you know a dozen people to sit around a table in a restaurant. Mostly uh, I, I, half the people are going to be very new to the company. Half are going to be from different different parts of the company. And the idea is you're going to come to dinner, but you're going to have to sing for your supper. So right. what have you learned different? What's new? And at one of those dinners early on, probably eight years, nine years ago, a uh, young lady uh, who just graduated from Hofstra University on Long Island was talking about how she spends uh, her time on Facebook. And that was the first I'd ever heard of Facebook. So I asked her about it. And the next day, I went and sat at a desk. And because I didn't have an EDU address, she showed me what she was doing on Facebook. And I said, this is going to be a big deal. And uh, so that's how we got early, early to Facebook. And that's I still do those dinners. And it's still where I, I get to hear early things. Uh, and now we've we've formalized it. We have a we took a group of people who are our creative department, a lot of young people, interesting piercings and tats and things and <laughs> great talent, but eager for new knowledge. So I asked them to officially be our trends team. And what they do is they're looking all the time at what's new and they put it up on, we use Google Plus in our shop to gather all those trends and they post them with their commentary on why this will be interesting, how it's going to affect. A lot of conversation over this past weekend about uh, uh, Microsoft's new uh, visors the uh, Very Holo Focus, yes, uh, uh, and about uh, the new uh, Oc- Oculus uh, devices. Oculus Rift, yes. Yeah, so uh, I was reading all weekend long about all these people, all the people in our shop. So finally, I said, I said to the fellow who runs that department about 
uh, three months ago, I said, who else is reading this? This is great stuff coming from your team. And he said, well, you know, just you and your brother and two or three other people. I said, well, why not share it with everybody? We have 10,000 people who work in a company. Why don't we share it with, well, I'm telling you, it's so rich in content now. It's almost like sipping out of a fire hose. You can't keep up with right. all the commentary. But and, and now some of our employees' kids are commenting. Because they're at home, they're talking about it at dinner, and the kid goes on and does a post and says why he thinks that the Rift device is going to be way different than that just six months from now. And you realize it's a 14-and-a-half-year-old kid from uh, from Medford, Oregon, who's opining here and has some unbelievably insightful thoughts. That that was my criticism of Steve Ballmer, who used to run Microsoft, who wouldn't let his kids use an Apple iPod or Google search hey, you're just cut off the greatest research team in the world, your kids. Why would you stop them from that? Uh, and that's the, the power of conversation. Let, let's just get it going. And uh, you don't have to have a research department. Your research department can be your 14-and-a-half-year-old driver's son uh, who's uh, opining on a conversation because he wants to be a part of it. So, so we know what you think about emerging technologies and how important they are to entrepreneurs. Let's talk a little bit about competition. Now, you've outlasted a lot of your competition, but how do you deal with someone fresh that comes into your space and is potentially a threat to the company's bottom line? Well, I think first and foremost is we were that person one time. So we did disrupt FTD, who was the, you know had 100% market share, and now we're quite a bit larger than they are. Uh, so we have it in our nature to understand that that can happen again. Mm -hmm. So we take seriously all the competition, and we use that whole team of people. Is What are they doing that's good? Let's really look at it. Let's not just dismiss them. And, well, wait a minute. We're already doing that. Maybe we're not putting enough publicity on what we're doing that people think it's so novel that that's the only thing they do when it's one of many. So you, you have to look at it as as good, uh, uh, as they're all going to be successful, or all going to get funded, and you say, is there a lesson there for us? Or should we be doing something we're doing differently? Should we be offering another alternative? And I think that's what keeps us all sharp: is that anyone can enter any of our businesses, uh, but if we're not if we're not paying attention, then someone can get a start. What about one of the giants in the space suddenly deciding we want to do flowers? Like hypothetically, Amazon. They have a huge footprint. They could sell whatever they want if they decide they want that space. They do. Uh, Amazon's a company we respect a great deal. We work with. We compete with. And uh, and they've been in and out of our category five or six times now. And we work very closely with them. We work a lot with their logistics people in terms of delivery. We've been doing same day and last mile for a long time. So right. we're collaborating all the time. And if they're going to compete with us, we have to be better than they are at what we do. And so uh, working with them is a good way to Keep them close. <laughs> so you're experts in, in social, you're experts in local. What do you do with mobile? I think the whole world is mobile. I think it changes everything, uh, and it's changed so fast it's incredible. But it also exaggerates social. I remember back in 2008, 2009, you might have read about it. There's this little recession thing went on. Um I was much younger then. I wasn't paying attention. But you did predict it. The, uh, <laughs> well, there was that. <laughs> there was a time when we, we had to cut back. We got hit by the recession, too, and we found out, wow, we are a little bit more ephemeral than we thought. Right. And we had the first time in 30-something years that we actually went backwards a year. Did and you have to lay people off? We did one time, and uh, it was painful, and we didn't imagine. want to do it again. And we also had a, But we never were unprofitable, and we had to cut back from 18 different development projects to four. But one of the four was mobile. Because we knew social and mobile, 
and then some internal development projects for, for technology had to go on because we were going to survive this. Uh, we couldn't do all the development projects we want, but those are the four that we had to continue. So we invested in mobile right throughout that. And our job is to be convenient. When a customer wants to express themselves and connect to somebody important to them in their lives, we have to be convenient. And what's more convenient than a device that's on your, uh, on your belt or in your pocket that you can access anytime, 24-7, to send anything anywhere around the world? So mobile is now the primary driver of all of our business. So you say on your belt. That's how I know you're from Long Island because you walk through Home Depot. <laughs> They're like holsters. You see people walking around. That's right. So I want to I throw a quote back at you that I, I found really interesting about entrepreneurs and small business owners, you function as three people at once, an entrepreneur, a manager, and a, and a technician, all vying for time in the owner's stress-filled day. The inevitable conflict is the primary reason why most startups fail. And then you go on to add, entrepreneurs need to learn to fire themselves from some of these duties. Explain that if you would. Well, I'm just thinking of all the mistakes I've made and continue to make. But in the early days, the biggest mistake I made was when I had my first flower shop, I I was the best designer. Can you imagine? I was the best floral designer. I was the best sweeper. I was the best uh, uh, window trimmer. I was the best delivery person. I was the best – well, first – because I was the only one. Right. And then, you know, but I, I wanted to be good at all of those things. It wasn't until I broke the mold and said, I don't need to be the first one in the morning and the last one every night, which I still do. Uh, but I don't need to do that because I was just being the best flower shop manager. And that was a waste because I could hire someone who was actually better than me at those things. And once I realized that I could hire people who were better, then I could focus on the things that only I could do. And the time I took away from doing the things that only I could do retarded my business. So for me, learning to get out of the way and let other people do what they can do well freed me up to do the things that only I could do, which were about growing the business and expanding the business. I've been speaking with Jim McCann, founder and CEO of 1-800-Flowers. We continue the conversation. You can listen to the rest of it on either Bloomberg.com or iTunes. You can check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or at the big picture at Ritholtz.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast portion of the show where we get to throw the script away and just shoot the breeze a little bit. That one actually went in the garbage. Um, so a little background for people. Interesting the way you hit that shot into the garbage Without there, even looking. Without like Matumbo it. coming and batting it that, away on you. So when I, when I picked up Jim on the sixth floor... Dikembe Mutombo walks by. He's all of seven foot something. He's walked by here a few times. He's, you can't, can't, I don't know how you recognize him. You can't see his face over the, so a little background I mentioned, I alluded to in our earlier conversation. The first time I saw you speak was at Silicon Alley Insider. And do you remember who the big star that day was? 1997. All right. So I remember Deb Solomon, who was a woman I knew who was doing, um, uh, pipes and working with a lot of small companies is the one who said, you should come to this event. Mm-hmm. So she dragged me there. She may have been the only woman in the whole room. Yeah, I remember and it was it, a rooftop That's space, right. Yeah. It was all the way downtown. And it was um, it was like, uh, you know, flies to, to honey. It was incredible. I'm like, you go through this every time you go to an event? You're just like swatting these guys <laughs> away. It was crazy. And then we saw you speak. And I turned to her afterwards and said, that looks like fun. I'd like to do that. She's like, go ahead. 
No, no, I'm not asking your permission. I'm just saying that's really cool to step up, stand up in front of a room of 500 or 1,000 people and over the course of 30 minutes regale them with a story that entertains, elucidates, mm -hmm. um, provides some information, and then sends them off to either forget about it or, or act on it. It was really intriguing. And then I don't know if you recall the next time we bumped into each other was at the Sky uh, the uh, Skybridge the, event. That's right, Salt the Conference. Salt Conference, yep. which our mutual friend Anthony Scaramucci puts on. Yep. I'm online. That so it was at the Bellagio, which is huge. Yes. The pool, the whole area around the pool is it's massive. Enormous. Right. They rope it off. You needed your your ID tag to get in. Yep. And they had this massive barbecue, and I'm standing online afterwards. I'll tell you a story about Tim Seymour. That's hilarious, but I, <laughs> I won't tell it on the air. But um, I'm on the I'm online to get some food, and I hear a voice behind me, mm -hmm. and I go, I know that voice, and I turn around, and I had done a panel actually on Bailout Nation with Austin Goolsby, yes, the gentleman who was a congressman whose name I couldn't remember. I just remember he went on way too long. And Austin Goolsby, who worked for President Obama and is back at the University of at, Chicago. At Chicago, right. He was the chairman of the Council, of, uh, Council of Economic Advisors. There was a congressman who I recall took a breath in the middle of a long diatribe. And, <laughs> and I requested with the congressman from Oklahoma, yield the floor and, and the filibuster. Ford. Was it? No, no, that was the other one. Oh, okay. He was from Tennessee. Yes. There was the older gentleman with the shock of white hair. Yes, yes. Yeah. A, a hefty guy who, who was on, I think, the Financial Crisis Investigation Committee. Mm -hmm. By the way, I love being the lightest weight person, meaning in terms of resume, uh -huh. on a panel. It means I fooled somebody that I end up <laughs> on a panel. I'm like, I don't belong here. I wrote a book. I have not. These guys are real serious guys. The fact that I got here is is... Uh, either good fortune or I, or I fooled somebody, but that's where I um, that's where we bumped into each other and we started chatting yep. at that event. And I couldn't believe that I didn't connect that I was reading your blog all the time, and at that the time. I, and that I knew you. That's right. I didn't connect the name of the blog with you, and it was like a huge revelation for us when we were sitting there chowing down in the on a cluster of some couches there around that's poolside. Right. That's in right. A, in what seemed like decadent world. <laughs> well, anytime you go to Vegas, it is decadent world. <laughs> really There's is. no respect for money out there. There's no respect for- But what a great conference that's become, huh? It's monstrous. It's huge. I, what I remember about the Bellagio, this is a true story. So I spend a lot of time doing research into behavioral issues yep. and psychology of investing. And Bella the Bellagio was famous- for having a pair of Monets in the lobby. Uh -huh. And these now go for 30, 40, 50 million dollars each. And I, I you know, there's like a, lo a receiving line to go see them. Yeah, I'm one of the idiots actually paid to go look. Oh no, you go, you go, you just walk up. All you have to do is lose enough money in the casino and you get to. So I'm I'd rather, behind. I'd rather pay the admission. So I'm behind these two big tourists that have a little bit of an accent and I'm watching the two of them look at this, and the husband says to the wife, "Come on, honey, let's let's go in the casino and win ourselves a Monet." And um, I remember thinking to myself, "No, you have it backwards. They have the Monet <laughs> because you're not going to win. You got to understand." There's a reason why it's on their wall. That's a, the, the, it's talk about data. That's pretty firm evidence. Yeah. Hey, forty million dollars hanging on the wall behind glass. 
They have to be doing something, and that includes not paying you a lot of money in the uh, in the casino. But I found that that conference was a boatload of fun. Yep, it's um, filled with hedge fund managers and others. Yep, um, the the la- that year year was the year I actually saw Bill Clinton after his bypass surgery uh-huh. walk into a very hostile room of three thousand hedge fund managers who were all. Not fans of his. It was like the golf applause. He walked out to a like yeah. the definition of a smattering. And an hour later, what? He walked out to a standing ovation, and if he would have asked for money, they would have broken out. I remember saying to myself, "Wow, oh, that's how that guy became president." If he said, "I need ten thousand dollars from each of you," he would have walked out of there with a hundred million dollars, like that. He no notes. He completely extemporaneously had a conversation. Yep. And then the Q and A, whatever was asked. He knew this stuff dead to right. So much details. He's amazing, and we're going to see a lot more of him again pretty soon. I think probably <laughs> in the next in the next election. Although um, uh, our mutual friend Scaramucci, I think he at one point in time was a fan. I don't think so anymore. Oh no. Well, uh, he was a big um, supporter. Romney, yeah. Last time, I think he was an Obama supporter. Lost faith and then became a Romney supporter. It'll be interesting to see what what happens with this. So, aside from the Salt Conference, what other events like that do you end up uh, going to? Uh, not a lot. There's one that I'm going to coming up soon that Allen and Company puts on out in Arizona. That uh, is uh, uh, it started as a smaller mid cap conference, mm-hmm. but it's now been taken over by the technology folks. Uh, so it's a big Silicon Valley crowd, but I find that to be very stimulating. They run an amazing event, and it's not a lot of people, but you get to hang out for a few days in the desert down there, uh, north of uh, Tucson, uh, down at Dove Mountain, at Ritz-Carlton down there, and the conversations are all unbelievably right. stimulating. I remember sitting, uh, oh, I'd say two years ago at lunch, uh, with Alex Rampell, who uh, uh, created Trial Pay, and Max Levchin, who's the... Uh, the prince of payments in Silicon Valley. Uh, uh, Max uh, created a company called Slide, sold it to uh, uh, Facebook. Another company sold to Google. He became Google's CTO for about six months and said, I don't belong in corporate. I start companies. Right. And uh, he left there and uh, then uh, launched Yelp. And uh, oh, really? uh, and now he's got a new company. So I'm sitting there at lunch. And uh, we, we had a, just came from a great presentation on everything mobile. And uh, he said to me, how important do you think mobile will be for you? So I told him. And, and he said- You said Al- massive? Massive. And uh, he said, what's the big retard? And I said, well, geez, I'd like, there's a whole audience of teenagers who are carrying mobile devices. And if they don't have a credit card, they can't be a customer of mine. So he started sketching on an envelope, uh, right. excuse me, on the back of a placemat, an idea for a business plan, now he, which he launched about a year and a half ago. But I watched him create it on this on this. So you got some founder stock, in other words. Uh, we got we invested. You did. We did, and it's a company called The Firm, and it uses social media to make a credit decision. So he said, so if someone presses a button on a mobile device that they want to buy from you, uh-huh. how do you confirm with a credit that put it in? Now you don't have to do that. They just said you want to you want to pay through a firm. And an algorithm does in computing. What they look at is, what's your behavior in social media? What are your friends' behavior in social media? Wow. What kinds of interactions? What's the quality of the interactions? And this algorithm that he wrote can make that determination sub-second and then take care of the billing information later on. 
So it's opening a whole new world That's of amazing. customers. And they're not using traditional scoring data at all. They're only using social profile data. So the thought process of who's going to go through the process of faking, creating an entire social profile, and behaving and having people interact with them, that sounds really difficult to forge. To save uh, $25 on a bouquet? Right, right. <laughs> so you think about you could create that with bots, but you should be able to tell what's real and what's fake. They can. They that, can. That's amazing. But, but to see, we were sitting in the same conference, listening to the same speakers, and just to see how their minds work. It's an example of why I like, like that event, because you're with people who think differently and think openly and open systems, and, and it's just a, a stimulating thing to, to go To ask through. you a question, you run a business, why can't you sell to teenagers? What, what do you need? That, that's really a tremendously – the question is really insightful, yep. as is the answer. You know, I go to this conference every other year in uh, San Diego – just because it's overwhelming to go every year. Yes. And it's a bunch of literally kids in college and all their new projects that they want to have funded uh-huh. and they want to – and you cannot go to one of these events. And I remember being there right – you mentioned the Great Recession. Mm-hmm. Right in the middle of the Great Recession and you come out of that thinking, I don't care how bad the economy is. There's no way we have a bleak future. What's coming out of these kids – look, I'm a curmudgeon. I'm a skeptic. I'm not, you're not, nobody's going to confuse me for a happy-go-lucky cheerleader. But you go to one of these events and you look at the new technologies coming along. You can't walk out saying, oh, you know, we might have screwed it up. They got a better shot at running the country than we did. It's it's that sort of optimism. And, and all you want to say is let's make sure we don't screw up that flow, that creativity. Let's not uh, narrow the broadband availability. Right. Let's not put any rules up. The only way the, the internet has had such a big impact on our lives and will continue to because there were no rules. Mm-hmm. Well, the last bit of administrative um, announcements about the internet very much was pr- pretty much what, what the big tech companies were looking for, which is you can selectively- um, Retard broadband, yeah. Right, that's right. And I think that's going to be huge. You, you know, you don't realize- how so many of the companies that exist today think YouTube and Facebook and go down the list, how they built on what came before. And the only reason they were capable of doing that is there was zero restrictions and never-ending increases in bandwidth. Well, you know, the first time at this conference that I go to, I heard uh, it was less than six months old, Airbnb present. Mm -hmm. And you hear that, and uh, then you see uh, uh, also probably within its first three or four months of birth, I saw them present was uh, uh, Uber. So you see companies like that and you say to yourself, you could never have been there, you, Barry Ritholtz, mm-hmm. never could have been there at the start of those companies because you have a law degree. And those companies could not have been born if there was someone in the room who was a lawyer because they would have told you, oh, that's not impossible, the insurance, the exposure, the risk. And they went ahead and plowed ahead. Now these companies are reshaping how we think about stuff and about transportation. Well, let me tell you something that a very wise man once said to me, which is whenever anybody says never, say, why never? Why not? Let's, let's, let's try it. Let's see what happens. Mm-hmm. Never. And from a stock and investing perspective, I can't tell you how many times I've had a conversation with someone about a given stock or a sector and when the response is, oh, why would anyone want to own that piece of blah, terrible? So what? So the iPod is the new Sony Walkman. Apple is toast. They're done. Whenever you get that, 
uh, response, that never response, it usually means that there's a lot of negative stuff already worked into the stock price. Something I've heard you say before, though, is the best ideas that you've heard of, the first time you heard of them, you thought were a joke. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So stop and think about Uber, right, as an example. So uh, not, I just actually had a debate with someone about this, and it's it's a whole long conversation. But what Uber did that was fascinating was identify a market where there was a limit of competition, almost a monopoly limit, mm-hmm. imposed by some regulatory scheme. Yep. So here in New York City, we have the Taxi and Limousine Commission. And they get to set a limit on how many Medallions. medallion cabs there were, mm-hmm. which at one point in time were worth a million plus dollars. Since Uber and Lyft came to town, what are they now? Oh, they've dropped thirty percent. Have and, they? And every city they go to, they end up impacting whatever the restriction is. So I, I like to use the New York City cabs because they're so awful as an example. But stop and think about it. There's there's rarely a cab when you really want one. The second it starts to rain, the supply is immediately gone. You can't you can't get one. And because there's not true competition, the cab industry has decided, ah, you know what? Even though it's rush hour, we're gonna turn the shifts over at five o'clock. Right? <laughs> Which you makes try and get no a cab sense. at five o'clock. <laughs> Sorry, I gotta go back to Queens or yeah. the Bronx to swap drivers. No, it's rush hour. Pick people up and take them places. Yeah. You could you could do it at four o'clock, you could do it at eight o'clock. Five o'clock is is right out. Make it midnight to noon. Pick some rational five. You couldn't pick a worse time. And the only reason they get away with that is there wasn't true competition. Uber has forced that competition. So let me ask you a question since you're always looking at technology and always looking forward. What other industries might be ripe for that sort of artificial restriction of supply being broken? Well, I, I think I think when you look at Uber, it's clearly not going to stay in the transportation space. The technology, the concept works in all different kinds of spaces. read an article over the weekend uh, uh, by fellow uh, – Reed Hoffman sent out a list of things he – From LinkedIn. From LinkedIn. Sent out a list of things he'd read recently over the weekend. Uh, and one of the articles I read that he pointed out was about the uh, – not the blue-collar workforce, not the white-collar workforce, but the collarless workforce. And that is using Uber-like technology that you're going to have a world of independent producers all carrying their own badge, which is their rating, mm-hmm. and their uh, list of capabilities, and it's transparency and, uh, and, and customer comment, their own ratings. And you're going to have all these people, TaskRabbit kind of people. They're driving Uber four hours. They're doing errands this other hour. They're a repairman. So they're selling their skills in a very efficient, friction kind of marketplace. So I think if you look at that, that's going to happen to a lot of industries. Uh, you know, why can't – and you're starting to see it now in pet care. You know, if, why do I have to take my dog to a kennel that I'm a little concerned about with, uh, with a, a, a message board I can find out who in the community does it in their home with maybe only two dogs – and uh, has a great rating from their customers because they really do care for the dogs and they take great care of them and it's in a home setting. Isn't that some? So I would say if I'm a kennel operator, I'm going to have a little bit more concern as this could start to erode my business where I'm competing with everybody else in the neighborhood. As, as they should, we haven't put a dog in a kennel and since the first time he came back with kennel cough, that was it. He's there done. you go. So you're, you're uh, you don't know, you're going to get 30 or 40 dogs. How do you know everybody's had their shots? Um, we also, and I don't know if you do this, we also find someone from the vet's office mm-hmm. who wants the house hit. So yes. this way, 
The dogs are where they are. The house, house is, is tended to, yeah. It, it, it's, but I love the idea that technology is enabling just a disruption of industries that aren't really servicing their clients all well. What might disrupt? And we, and we didn't know that we weren't being serviced well. Because you're so well. used to it, you <laughs> shrug it. Look, I'm waiting for the airlines to get disrupted. You, we tolerate so much nonsense when we fly. Yep. You fly a decent amount. I fly all over the country. You kind of just grit your teeth and, and bear with it. Or you could pay $10,000 and do a NetJets or one of those mm-hmm. and fly a couple of times, but it unless you're going to pay and why, fairly I, steep dollar amounts. I guess it's not something popular to talk about, but that the whole private jet industry has not quite been Uberized yet, but it will be. Not yet. It will be. There's a, a company called Blade yes. that's trying to Uberize helicopter travel uh-huh. from New York City to the Hamptons yeah, well, that's, or New York City to the airports. Uh-huh. So not quite a full-on Uber. It's it's aiming at a real narrow slice. So in your business, are you worried about being Uberized? Are you concerned that someone come, could come along and disrupt floral delivery the way you did? I'd say yes and no. The, the yes is, yes, we watch for everything that we think can be disruptive. The no is, I think what we see is there's more opportunity. So we've been crowdsourcing deliveries for 40 years. That is, that is Uncle Joe, if he wants to be invited for Thanksgiving dinner, is going to be at our shop and take a personal day from IBM on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving to help us do our deliveries. Mm-hmm. Well, that's sort of crowdsourcing our deliveries. But now the ability to use that technology, what I get excited about is we have these uh, florists all over the country who are part of our network. You know what? It's shame on us, but Grubhub gets busy at about 6 o'clock at night. When do all our trucks come back and get put down for the night? Uh, put away for the evening, 6 o'clock. We have this fleet. What else can we do with it to serve our customers, to serve our florist, to leverage assets we already have and have paid for? Mm-hmm. So uh, we spend more time thinking about what can we do to disrupt ourselves? What can we do to serve our customers differently? What can we do to serve? So if we are in a, uh, if we have the end cap in a shopping center in, uh, in uh, Sioux City, Iowa. and The we, end cap being what? The end cap of a retail store. So you're the last- uh, Yeah, so we have a franchisee in the last uh, beautiful uh, 2,000-square-foot uh, 1-800-flowers uh, flower shop there. And he's got three trucks. And then there's a dry cleaner who has a truck that he uses once or twice a day. And then the food shop doesn't have a truck because he doesn't really deliver. So my conversation with that franchisee recently was, what if we look differently about having those trucks on the road? What if we did service the whole center and became their delivery operation? Same number of trucks, same number of drivers. We're just going to be much more efficient now. And that rolling inventory of media inventory of those trucks is going to be much more present in those communities now. And there's a new revenue source for us. That's quite fascinating. So we're starting to – how do we disrupt ourselves? That's really quite fascinating. Let me shift gears on you and let's talk a little bit of baseball. So you are a 4%, is that right? I'm a small owner, (laughs) a small investor in uh, in New York York Mets. Mets. Right. So let me, do we want to start talking about the pitching, the hitting? Where do we want to begin our list of complaints? Well, not complaints. Let's look about how exciting this is. Now, I, next week is pitches and catches, but who's counting? Right. And we're going to have a fellow by the name of Wheeler, a fellow by the name of Harvey, uh, DeGrum, the rookie of the year, uh, returning veterans like Nice and uh, 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 G. What an exciting uh, spring this is going to be for us. How did you ever find your way into the Mets ownership? Well, uh, been friends for a long time. My wife, Marilou, and I have been friends for a long time with uh, Fred and Judy Wilpon, their mm-hmm. son, uh, Jeff. 
And uh, when they went through their uh, challenges, uh, obviously... Uh, Post-Bernie Madoff, that the, whole... The Post-Madoff uh, problems that they confronted there. You know, obviously, we're close, so we're going to be talking about it. And uh, we were helping him. I was helping him think through his alternatives and to whatever extent I could. And then uh, finally, when uh, they decided to syndicate uh, the team, uh, Fred invited me to think about... He says, I know how much you love the team and how... How close you and I are, I'd be, I'd be thrilled to have you as a partner. So it was a wonderful uh, phone call to get and one that's been great fun for my family. That I can imagine. I know a number of people, including David Einhorn, was hoping to pick up some or all of the Mets, and uh, the Wilpons managed to... Um, some people said they pulled a rabbit out of the hat. It looked like they just did some pretty basic blocking and tackling, not to mix sports metaphors, <laughs> to, to basically unwind that that mess that and now there they is had found themselves and in. now they're good for them they're a good family and they're back on top and uh and they're very excited about spring we were just chatting uh uh on friday about the dates we're going to be together down at spring training you know when i can bring my two grown sons down and we can spend a weekend just talk baseball and watch the the uh the players uh, uh train and sit in the stands and watch a game it's such good, clean fun for a family. And, you know, when you have grown sons who have their own families now or one of the two have started his own family, when you can get time away like that, it's just sort of like a whole renewal ritual and a whole rebonding. And when you get back and you're at the airport and you're going three different ways and you say, ah, it was a good weekend, they, they give you a hug and they say, no, Dad, this was a great weekend. You say, baseball has been very, very good to me. So the Mets have always – been in the shadows of the, the who? more famous uh, New York Yankees. That's right. And we play one another twice this year. That's two different right. se- series. But it looks, when you look at the prospects of the team, we have Jeter retiring. We have a number of very well-known people on the Yankees, a little uh, past their sell-by date. <laughs> are, are we actually looking at a possibility of the Mets significantly outperforming what the uh, New York Yankees can do? I think what the Mets are going to do is they're going to outperform what they've done in the past. Well, but now you're setting the bar very low. And no, I say no, this, hey. by the way, I say this as a long-suffering New York Mets fan. I know, I know. So it's... it's we, we improved our win re- record last year by five games. Right. We had the gold glover of the year in center field who came out of the system mm-hmm. uh, in Juan Lagares. You had the rookie of the year out of your farm system and your pitching, which you got in a trade, by the way, right. uh, a, a thoughtful trade trading way R.A. Dickey. Uh, so you had good things uh, come there. So you had rookie of the year. You had the center fielder of the year. You had uh, development of other kids coming up. Like How about some uh, hitting? Flores. What about some hitting? Hitting is uh, going to be we're challenged, but I think uh, <laughs> I think uh, David Wright's going to have a better year. He's going to be healthy this year. Grandison had a pretty okay le- year last year, not as bad as people said, but I think he's going to have a very good year this year. The dimensions are now back to Shea Stadium dimensions now in the new city field. Can I tell you something? And I know everybody always raves about Yankee Stadium. I've been to both stadiums. Both nice, both different. City One's field a lot more is, comfortable. City Field is much more comfortable. Yeah. Than the, the food is But Yankee better. Stadium is a stadium. That concrete, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. No, listen, it's Yankee Stadium. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Shea Stadium, the Mets Stadium, was always the the weaker sister. No question. Now, it's as nice, if which, not nicer. Which you like, vanilla or chocolate. They're both nice, very different. You're very diplomatic. You're no, I, I, diplomatic. I, that's how I feel. I, I, I feel I really like City Field. I think it's the design fantastic. is very nice. Can I tell you, they, they did a... So, and the Shake Shack burgers are very good. Though. Well, they just went public, <laughs> and the food is... As far as fast food goes, that's going to be your best burger. I saw the... It was. It might have been the first concert. Um, I think it was the first concert after it opened... 
because he had said on stage that they were the last concert ever at Shea. It was Paul McCartney. Uh-huh. And um, so beforehand, we were hanging out in one of the lounges. I forgot which one it was. They all have different names. The space was fantastic. Yep. And it was a great place to see a show. It was just a... I came away saying, I got to go see a ball game here because this was really so much fun. And it used to... By, by the way, the old Shea Stadium, if you were... Unless you were behind first play, uh, home plate... The way the stadium was shaped and how long and flat the bleachers were off of from... You're a long way from the field. You were thousands of miles <laughs> away. Now, now you're right on the field. Th- there is, there's almost like there's no bad seats in the stadium. And there's a lot fewer seats. Only 42,000 seats Oh, really? Yeah. That explains why there are no bad seats. 58,000 so. to 42,000. So you got rid of the 16th. At, well, back then, half the seats were terrible. Mm. But... um. But this is just uh, look. Yankee Stadium is a cathedral. Yep, this, that's right. This is just a fast. One, one's a stadium. One's a field. Mm-hmm. I think it says it all. And there you go. That's <laughs> a, that's exactly right. But it's going to be a fun time in that field this year. Uh, to to say the least. Uh, any blockbuster trades coming up? Any thoughts of? I don't. You know, to see the nature of uh, the team, the way it's been built, and I think Sandy Alderson's uh, and and his team have done a remarkable job of saying, look, we have a game plan. We're going to stick to it, and they have. And all these young people coming up are coming up through the system. And by the way, the system is the healthiest it's ever been. Uh, if the minor league performance, best of any team in baseball, uh, number of wins, uh, the strikeout ratios, every way you measure, they've really stepped up. And are you a moneyball? guy do you like very the much stats, the data? very much very much and uh and of course sandy introduced that out in oakland uh, many mm-hmm. years ago and taken to other levels by other people but sandy and his team boston for to say as an example yeah well boston they moved away from it a little bit but certainly every team now has embraced every team so sandy's had a huge impact on the game and we think a huge impact on the mets so why don't we um i know you have places to go i don't want to keep you too much longer why don't we um leave it at that, that we're going to actually theoretically have a plus 500 winning season for the Mets this year? I think so. All right. And I'll see you uh, at City Field at, and at some other places around town uh, <laughs> going forward. My guest today has been Jim McCann. He's the founder and CEO of 1-800-Flowers and a minority owner of the New York Mets. Jim, this was great. Thank you for spending so much time no, with it's us. It's always fun to be with you, Barry. Well, thank you so much. And um, be sure and check out... All of our other interviews that uh, will be, if you're listening to this part of the show, you're listening to the podcast, so look like a half an inch up or half inch down on Apple iTunes, and you'll see all the rest of these. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.